Hello, and welcome to the New Life Philly Women's Bible Study Talks. New Life Philly is located in the Olney section of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and check us out at newlifephilly.net. Each year, the women of New Life Philly walk through one or two books of the Bible. Our speakers are women connected to our church community who have walked a while with Jesus and desire to share with others what God has been speaking to their hearts as they have meditated on a particular passage in the book we are studying. Our hope is that your hearts and lives will also be blessed by our speakers. Hello. Welcome to Women's Bible Study. And of course, thank you for coming. And um, I pray that God will bless you through the study of Haggai. So you might wanna keep Haggai open on your lap somewhere while you look at your handout that I have given you called Haggai in History and follow along. We begin our study of Haggai with history and prophecy. Prophecy and history come crashing together in the year 586 BC, when after years and years of dire warnings, the kingdom of Judah comes to a sudden end with the destruction of the city, the temple, and the mass deportation of its people. For the first time since slavery in Egypt, there was no Israel, no kingdom of Judah, no people of God in the promised land, and all because of willful disobedience and unending idolatry. God's wrath, promised for so long, had finally come on his own people. The death of this nation was a disastrous end to the mission, or so it seemed. But as he had done before, God would recreate. He would start over again with his remnant. And so in 538 BC, Cyrus announces that the Jews can go back to Judah and Jerusalem. They not only can, they must rebuild their temple. You see, Cyrus, of course, wanted the Jews, like all the other disparate and diverse peoples of the empire, to rebuild their temple and worship their own God as a way to keep them complacent and happy to belong to the Persian empire. Behind Cyrus's political ambitions, though, God began to move the Jews back into true worship and reform them back into the people of God. When the first group of exiles returned from Babylon, one of the first things they did was rebuild the altar and begin to sacrifice to God. They sent away for lumber and started working on the temple of the Lord. But they faced great opposition from local leaders and the people who now lived in the land. Remember, these people were not Jews that had stayed for the last 70 years. They weren't Jews that hadn't gone into captivity. They were foreigners who had been imported from elsewhere by Assyria, whose tactic to keep subjugated people complacent and calm was to move them all around so that no one was in their original spot. At any rate, the work on the temple was frustrated because the Jewish exiles began to fear for their lives. They did, however, continue to work their own lives, developing their businesses and farms, forming connections and building their houses. The Hebrew word often translated paneled houses actually means roofed in houses. 
There's no indication that they were all about luxury in their homes. They were simply building decent houses that kept out the elements. And so 16 years passed like this. It's true that circumstances appear to dictate action. But what else could they have done in the face of all this opposition? Compared to the other ethnic groups in the empire who were at this time developing nationalistic fervor and starting to rebel, the Jewish repatriates seemed hopeless, lethargic, and filled with inertia. Then along comes Haggai. From all indications, Haggai was an old man at this point when he suddenly embarks on the greatest mission of his life. The word of the Lord comes to him. Well, what are Haggai's qualifications? He must have studied the pre-exilic prophets very closely because he quotes them with ease and sprinkles references to their prophecies throughout his own. He knows and cares about God's word and about God's honor and glory. It appears that he personally could remember the old temple in all its glory, which means that he could remember why he and they had spent most of their lives in forced exile. And he knew the importance of the temple. The restoration of true worship in Israel was critical, not only to their identification as Israel, but to the advancement of God's kingdom on earth. So Haggai begins to light a fire under the Jews. <coughs> Excuse me. He doesn't light this fire under the Jews so that they could become an Israel first nation, nor does he light it for them to rise up for Jewish supremacy or even independence, but to do something far more important in the scheme of all eternity, rebuild the temple. Now, there's a lot of chaos in the empire at this time. The tyrant Cambyses who had taken over from the beloved Cyrus had killed himself while on back from a campaign his successor, Darius, is forced to spend the first year or two of his reign putting down rebellions here and revolutions there. It must have looked like God was shaking the nations just as the old prophecies had predicted. And that meant that the Messiah would soon come and make everything right. The temple, obviously, must be ready to welcome him. Now, in 2020 hindsight, we can tell that like all the prophets, Haggai saw the immediate work of God, the intermediate coming of Jesus as a man, and the final restoration of the kingdom all at once. But to the people of his time, it did look like the fulfillment of all prophecy was upon them. Compared to the white hot anger of Zephaniah that we saw a few weeks ago, Haggai appears to be a gentle prophet. He's still the mouthpiece of God, He's still accusing the people of dereliction of duty, but because this time he's talking to the remnant, the very ones that God saved out to restart his mission, Haggai's message is more a gentle nudging, a reminder moving them in the right direction than it is a promise of wrath and destruction. As you know from your reading of Haggai this week, the prophet speaks four times in as many months. His first message is the toughest when he challenges the priorities of the people. How on earth can you be living in your roofed-in houses when God's house is still a ruin? Haggai makes it clear that God is watching and that there are consequences to their choices. Verse 6 tells us, you planted much but have harvested little. 
You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in them. International history tells us that Judah's poverty at this time was probably the result of Cambyses' armies running back and forth across Palestine on their way to fight Egypt. But Haggai tells us that it is God himself who has blighted their lives, and he tells them why. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, I have withheld what you need for success. It's important at this point to pay attention to two things, the people and God. First, the people. Amazingly enough, the people have soft hearts. They hear Haggai, immediately repent. Their repentance is shown not by empty words, the Lord, the Lord, as their ancestors had done, but by actions. Why were their hearts so soft? Well, they had lived the consequences of their sin. Their grandfathers and grandmothers, their fathers and mothers, and even they themselves had been carted off into captivity. They knew why destruction had come. Zephaniah, Jeremiah, other prophets had warned them again and again. The people of God had gone over to the dark side, worshiping idols, ignoring the God who made them, the God who rescued them from captivity and brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. So now that they're back, they know better. Never again will any Jew bow down to the idols of the nations around them. They're not perfect. They're not living in paradise yet. They continue to sin, but their will has been changed. Now they will to follow God. So when Haggai speaks, they hear him. They repent. OMG, they, what shall we do? They say, build the temple? On it. Now, secondly, pay attention to God. God will blight the hopes and dreams of his people if he needs to. In American Christianity, we have a strong belief that God will bless us, especially if we obey. In other words, do right, follow the rules, give ourselves to the church, to our family. And even when we know the scriptures, there is a strong tendency to view God as a heavenly vending machine. I'll do this, and he does that. I'll give him this, he'll give me that. Sometimes people blame the Puritans for this way of thinking, as if they taught that right living automatically means prosperity. They did indeed teach that wealth is not evil, just as poverty is not a curse. And they did indeed teach the value of hard work and diligence and the necessity of a transformed life. But over time, these beliefs have come to mean, I'll obey God in this particular way, and God will give me what I want. But Haggai makes it clear that God is willing to blight our lives. Again, in American Christianity, we don't have a way of fitting God into the hard things in life. God allows things bad things. He doesn't cause them, we think. Or people will say, thank God in the circumstances while you're going through them. Don't thank God for the circumstances. But Haggai tells us that nothing is an accident. We can't blame bad circumstances on this fallen world or the devil 
God himself says, you planted, I didn't let you get a harvest. You worked, I didn't let you get rich. John Newton, more widely known as the former slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote about God's hard work in our lives this way. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Why does God blight and blast his own people? To change our hearts, to change our priorities, to remind us to take care of God's business and not just our own. The Jews in Palestine forgot to take care of God's business. God doesn't fault them for giving way to threats against their lives. He faults them for forgetting about his business when the threats had died down. Haggai's words to the people were always consider, think hard about, give careful thought to. And that is exactly what we should do when we sense that God may have set his face against us in some way. Give careful thought. The second prophecy comes one month after work on the temple begins. It is a message of encouragement for people who are oh so gloomy. Some of them remember the incredible beauty and richness of Solomon's temple, built at the behest of the richest and most powerful king with access to all the wealth of the world by craftsmen from all over the Middle East. Now they're doing it themselves with lumber from Lebanon, true, but not much else. What good is it? The foundations look small, the temple will be shabby. How can this honor God? Again, let's look at the people and at God. The people are depressed. They've willingly set to work in obedience to Haggai's word to them, but they lack faith to know how it's going to be accomplished. They don't have resources and they can't imagine how they will get them. God does not fault them for being bruised reeds, for being weak. Instead, he is gracious and loving and abounding in mercy he sends an encouraging word. Encourage means to put courage into the heart of someone. So how does God put courage into his people? First, he says, be strong, and echoes 
God's exhortation to the very first Joshua and the people when they went in to take the land for the first time. And then he says to them, I am with you, just as he promised Moses. He says, my spirit remains among you. You see, it is the presence of God with us that gives us courage. And finally, he gives proof that he is with us. He says, watch what I will do. I will shake the heavens, the earth, all the nations, and fill the temple with glory. Silver and gold are mine. The desired of all nations will come, and I will grant peace. Now that sounds like a prophecy for the end of time. But the people don't need a prophecy for thousands of years in the future. They needed God's provision today, and that's exactly what they got. That phrase, desired of all nations, which people think when we first read it, must be talking about Jesus, is actually written in the plural. It really means that which is desired by all nations. In other words, wealth. Biblical scholars believe that it meant the wealth of the nations was coming to them, coming to the temple. How could this be? Well, when the enemies of the Jews saw them working on the temple again, they freaked and they wrote a letter to King Darius, who after searching the archives, confirmed that Cyrus's command was that the temple be rebuilt and that all the peoples help provide the funds. So Darius further commanded that any money needed by the Jews or anything they needed at all for the temple building or for their rituals was to be provided from the royal treasury, specifically from the taxes of trans-Euphrates. In other words, the money paid in tax by Israel's enemies all around them was now to go directly to build the temple. Commentators agree that this provision probably arrived right after Haggai's second prophecy. And in later years, more wealth was lavished on the temple by the likes of Herod the Great and his successors. So what do we learn from this? We learn this. God provides for his own glory. And what does that mean for us? You might look at your life and you might say, what do I have to offer? You might say something like, all I ever wanted was to be a mom but I fail as a mom so often. Or, my dream has always been to, and you fill in the blank, but it never works. Or, everything I touch seems to turn to dust. God says to you, I provide for my own glory. When you want to focus on how or where things have gone wrong, God says to you, I am accomplishing my will through you. You are still redeeming your small corner of the world. When you see only shabbiness and the mess, God says to you, you are building more than you can see. The third prophecy, coming two months later, serves as a signpost for the people. Haggai reminds them of where they've been. Everything you've touched has been defiled. Nothing has been blessed. The ruined temple sits in their midst as a witness. And then he points to the future. 
from this day onward, because you obeyed, you will be blessed. You will have everything you need, and then some. This new promise dates from the day they laid the new foundation. You see, God has a mission. The earth shall be filled with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. It is the Lord who will make absolutely sure of that. We have just walked through two of the most significant events in world history. The very mission itself was blighted and blasted like no other dream or hope in the history of mankind. When the one we followed as the Messiah, the one we thought would make everything right, was put to death on a cross. At that point, it was all over. You can't get any more blighted than that. But then came Sunday, when God himself rose up and made sure that the mission was fulfilled. Sure, build the temple. Don't just live in paneled houses. But the building of the temple is a symbol for something way more real, that the real temple of God will come down out of heaven and be present among us. Finally, Haggai's word to Zerubbabel in his fourth prophecy is God's promise, his engagement ring, his down payment on a house, if you will. He says Zerubbabel will be as God's signet ring. Now, God had told Jehoiachin through Jeremiah that though he was God's signet ring, God would tear him off. And now he tells Jehoiachin's grandson that he and the royal house of David were being restored. The sentence pronounced by God over Judah is being reversed. Why a signet ring? All authority in the ancient world is in that signet ring. So much authority that the king would wear it at all times just to keep it safe. So when God, through Haggai, speaks this prophetic word over Zerubbabel, a direct descendant of David, he's saying two things. I will keep you safe, Zerubbabel. I will ensure that you fulfill your destiny. And secondly, he's looking forward to the end, to the end of time when David and Zerubbabel's descendant, Jesus, sits on the throne and all authority in heaven and earth is given to him. Haggai calls his people, and through his inclusion in scripture, he calls us to wholehearted obedience to the mission. When God restores the heavens and the earth, when his kingdom has fully come, we will have completed the mission. We will have, through God, filled the earth and subdued it. Glory to God.